Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 4 to 16. And so far, we've seen Solomon, who's called the teacher uh, in Ecclesiastes. Uh, we've seen him searching for meaning under the sun, and that's his way of referring to his time on earth. He's tried to find fulfillment uh, in work and in the pleasures of this world. He's also watched people around him try to do the same, but to no success. And in this chapter, he turns his head to human relationships. But thankfully, we're not, tonight we're not going to look at how meaningless human relationships are, so we can chill out. In fact, human relationships, and particularly friendship, seems to be the first thing that Solomon finds positivity in, in Ecclesiastes. He says that if we can learn to do relationships well, then they can be fruitful and they can be God-honoring. So for most of us uh, in our modern translations, Solomon, Solomon's go-to word is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But in the original Hebrew, uh, the word is hevel. And hevel translates as smoke or vapor. Now, smoke and vapor aren't necessarily meaningless, but they are uncontrollable. And their meaning isn't fully known all of the time. And when we apply this idea of hevel to our own human relationships, it actually feels quite familiar. How many of us can testify to this, that relationships can be tricky, they can be complex and not entirely within our control. Think about breakups or betrayal, relationships that are hot and cold, family dynamics, and then those friendships just seem to work forever with no hard work needed. Solomon gives us a lifeline here in a book that is seemingly quite dark. Not everything is a waste of our time. Actually, here is this gift, human connection, And if we can learn to put the work in, it can actually be quite fruitful. This is the part where I'm going to condense all of human relationships down into one cute little analogy. Um, So as part of my job, I work in a school for kids who have been kicked out of mainstream school, which essentially looks like putting all the mental kids in a room, shaking it up and letting them loose. And one afternoon, we were doing a football tournament. And there are three kids in this story uh, who I'm going to call Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, Now, Mark and Luke, they're on the same team, and Mark is an excellent footballer with a little bit of a temper. He spends most of the game dribbling around opponents, dancing his weaving his way through the other team. Luke, who is also on his team, is just trying to get by without a mistake, just trying not to be seen. Matthew is just on the other team. Now, Matthew sticks a leg in to try and tackle Mark. Mark, with his temper, doesn't like that, but the game continues, no harm, no foul. Mark, once again, dances and dribbles his way through the opposing team. Once again, Matthew sticks another leg in, this time just a little bit further, and wipes out the much smaller Mark. But again, the game continues because Matthew won the ball. Then, about five seconds later, Luke, who doesn't want to be seen, and Matthew are now in the far corner of this cage, jostling for the ball. They're, pretty, they're stood pretty much stationary, just kicking at it and holding each other off, trying to get at it. Mark, who's just been tackled, 
out of nowhere decides that he's going to come flying in and drop kicks Luke, his own teammate, in the face. There was harm and there was a foul. <laughs> Mark realizes quite quickly that he hasn't hit his target at all, so jumps to his feet and starts throwing punches at Matthew. Naturally, Mark gets sent off for not only punching an opponent, but also for drop kicking his own teammate in the face. And poor Luke, his relationship with his teammate was not as controllable as he thought, to the point that Mark's relationship with Matthew has had a negative effect on him because he's just been kicked in the face. And tonight is about reflecting on our human relationships and how we can do them well in order to get the best out of them and that they can reflect the love Jesus has for us and has given us to share. So if you want to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 to 16, and I'll read for us. They should also be behind me. Cool. So here we go. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So to start off, and keeping the form, Solomon highlights everything that's rubbish about human relationships. In verse 4, I saw that all toil and achievement springs from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Here, he's talking about oppression and how humans take advantage of other humans through envy. But in the second part, Solomon acknowledges the goodness that can be found in friendship, a positive, but it does have a bit of a caveat, which is what he finishes the passage with, almost a warning, that we will end up back at envy if we aren't teachable. If we as humans can't learn and be taught to do relationships well, then we're only going to be destructive. And relationships are everything, right? Their family, their friends, their colleagues, their housemates, they're even strangers. If we can't learn to do this well, this will inevitably affect every facet of our lives. 
to look back at our relationship between Matthew, Mark and Luke. Luke was just an innocent bystander, affected by the fact that Mark, his own teammate, couldn't control his own emotions or his connection to Matthew. Mark didn't have the emotional vocabulary to assess that it was just a game. No matter what the relationship is or who they might be, all we can do is control how we are involved. We can only control our end. We can only learn grace, patience, and grow in ways to interact with everyone we meet in as healthy a way as possible. Also, there's a really good chance someone's going to find us difficult too. So we kind of hope that they will be gracious for us as well, because this is how Jesus calls us to live. In Ephesians 4, uh, verses 32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Which takes me to my first point, which is the futility of envy. This is Solomon's warning in verses 4 to 8. But just prior to this section, he's reflected on all the oppression he's seen and has gone as far as saying that the dead are happier than those who are alive. So we're off to a flying start. But in verses 4 to 8, which I'll read again, we'll see that his conclusion um, on envy. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Solomon decides in verse 4, all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another, and that this too is meaningless. This is the first point when asking ourselves the question, how do we do human relationship well? And Solomon wants us to start with reflecting on ourselves. Envy is a sickness that sets itself in all of us. Envy starts wars. Envy destroys families, friendships, causes anxiety. Solomon highlights that no matter the scale of the fallout, the emotion is actually just the same. Asking the question, have you ever felt envy, feels a little bit silly. We have all felt it, and we probably feel it on a daily basis because it's ingrained in all of us as broken human beings. Someone has a job you want, someone has the life you want, the relationship you don't have. Envy can be as active as outward rejection of that person, or the little voice in your head that says, well, they only got that because of this reason. They only got in that position because of luck or for whatever it might be. Envy can stop us being happy for our friends and our family. It won't allow us to simply celebrate their wins, but in fact, it can drive us to even tarnish it instead. If I can't have it, well then, you can't enjoy it. And a personal example for me is this. At uni, I studied film, and I really wanted to get into film journalism or screenwriting. I just knew I wanted to write about films in some form. And so I did. I started writing for some websites and doing some film journalism, which a lot of basically was spent uh, on Twitter, taking part in discussions, sharing what you're writing about, and pitching ideas. I did all of the stuff that I seen everyone else doing, especially those who were just slightly further on than me. 
I pitched some ideas that I thought were really interesting. Nobody else did. And I seen some ideas get published that I thought weren't very interesting. Other people did. Neither was working. And I tried to do the maths on why they were getting published and not me. Was I not active on Twitter enough? Was I behind the curve? Was I not talking about things that were current enough or funny enough or Star Wars or Marvel? <laughs> then eventually I got to the question, what's so good about that person compared to me? It eventually became a reflection of my own worth as a human being. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Someone else's achievement, success, or lifestyle leaves a bitter taste in your mouth or causes you to react or feel negatively toward them. This is what Solomon is warning us about. And in Proverbs 14, it says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Nelson Mandela spoke on this too. He said, Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it's going to kill your enemies. Mandela's image of poison, or Proverbs describing it as rot, highlights how slow and steady and patient envy can be. And you might not even notice it at first, probably because it feels quite good in the moment. Then it becomes easier to access the next time it comes up and the next time until it's just natural. You don't know how to react any other way to someone else's success other than to see how it affects you. But the only person being damaged by this is you is us. We have to fight that mindset by setting our identity in Jesus actively and wholeheartedly, spend time with him, reflect and be honest with him on how you're feeling. Believe me, he can handle your frustration, he can handle your anger just as much as your joy. If our priority is pursuing Jesus and not a promotion or a relationship or a new whatever, then we will find an ability to be content with wherever we are at. In Hebrews 13 it says, be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? That also includes what we will do to ourselves. And in Jesus, we can be freed of envy, we can be freed of insecurity, and of the need to compare and to compete. So, Human relationships do have their negatives, but thankfully, as Solomon continues, there is value in friendship and human connection. This is the second part of this choice that Solomon presents us with. We've heard the negative, but now he highlights what we can have in verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is actually quite positive, considering how much Ecclesiastes talks about the meaningless of everything else. Solomon's actually recognizing here Actually, we need people. People can give us good things, and we can give good things to other people. He says they can lift us up. They can keep us warm. I don't really want any of you to keep me warm, but I see what he's saying. And they can also defend us, or what Solomon highlights as the good things we can give and receive from good friendships. And there was a film and book growing up that I really loved called Into the Wild. The book is by John Krakar, and it's the biography of a man called Christopher McCandless. 
And Christopher McCandless is a college graduate from a very successful American family that on the surface looks like they have everything they could ever need. And now the cherry on top is their son is a college graduate with excellent job prospects. But actually, this is all a bit of a facade and they're deeply unhappy as a family. Christopher can't handle the facade anymore and decides he's going to react by giving his entire life savings to charity and traveling across America. The goal for him is Alaska. Now he meets some fascinating people along the way who bring this solo adventure of his to life, but all the while, whenever anyone wants him to stay, he's adamant on getting to Alaska. Alaska is gonna satisfy this insatiable desire for fulfillment that he has. Who's ever had that feeling? When life or people feel so claustrophobic or overwhelming that you'd rather drop everything and do something drastic? Well, he does make it to Alaska, but the catch is he dies. Christopher didn't know how to read the rivers of Alaska or know what plants were edible, where it was safe to go because of the wildlife and with no one to consult or no one to help him, he got stuck in the seasons when the rivers got too strong, he got stuck there, ate the wrong plant and died. That's not a scare tactic to stop everyone being bold and traveling, um, even though Manchester's the greatest city on earth. Some people in here will tell you that. But McCandless was found with a series of books and diaries that he'd scrawled in, little notes and, and feelings that he'd had across his journey. And one of them that sticks out uh, is, happiness is only real when shared. Happiness is only real when shared. Here is someone who achieved his worldly goal only to realize it didn't actually meet his expectation. It was the people along the way that had made it special and brought him happiness. And it took facing death for him to realize and accept that the people had already given him what he was seeking. We are called to be in friendships and to have community. And the night before Jesus dies, he's with his friends and he says this, in John 15, verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then a little bit further in verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus has called us into friendship with each other, but first and foremost, with him. Jesus puts that higher value on friendship that the night before he dies, he's telling his disciples, you're my friends, and you must love each other and others as I have loved you. So therefore, our friendships need to reflect that love he has for us. How do we do that? Thankfully, Jesus gives us a pretty good blueprint when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. We must be self-sacrificial in our love and friendship. Jesus urges us to lay our lives down for friends and neighbors. But what does that really look like? And have we ever thought about what it means to do that from a basis of God's love for us? When we truly know what it means to have received God's love for us and to love ourselves, only then can we love others truly, truly and healthily. When we know what God thinks of us and when our identity is firmly placed in him, we're no longer looking for friendship to meet all of our needs and satisfy our desires because no friends can bear the weight of that. We need to learn to strike this balance of knowing Jesus is, true, is the true satisfaction of our hearts. And at the same time, we can pursue friendships in which we can share our burdens and carry the burdens of others. There's so much potential in friendship 
for God's heart to be revealed in empathy, compassion, and love. And we want to pursue this in the best way possible. That word I mentioned at the beginning, hevel, sometimes we aren't going to know the meaning of why people are acting the way they are. We aren't going to be able to control people or their situations. This process of loving well won't always be easy because community is messy, because we are all messy. But we are worth pursuing. If we're being fulfilled by Jesus, and if our identity and our worth is in him first and foremost, and not our friendships, then our whole perspective towards our friends shifts. It becomes healthier. We stop putting the responsibility on them to save us, but just to help us, to love us, to keep us warm, and instead put our trust and hope in Jesus. Which takes me on to my final point, the importance of teachability. And this is the final piece of the choice Solomon gives us. He's shown us what happens when we're envious and human relationships are done badly. He's also shown us how good they can be. Now he says, if you don't want to end up back at envy, then pay attention. So I'm just going to read verses 13 to 16 uh, once more. Better a poor wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon's contrasting this young person, this young youth, uh, who is wise and willing to take advice with a king who thinks he knows it all and no longer needs to learn or listen to others. It's implied in verse 13 that this king was also once young and teachable, but is now stuck in his ways. And eventually, that youth gains power and takes over the king. However, if the youth who becomes the king can't remain teachable, then the same will happen to them. And this is a metaphor, really, for our friendships and our relationships. You kind of got your honeymoon period. Everything's great. This new partner, this new person, this new friend is incredible and can do no wrong. And then fast forward six months, a year, maybe a little bit longer. They aren't so perfect anymore. The shine wears off. Trust me, ask Rosie. Also, you aren't so perfect anymore. Our brokenness begins to reveal itself. So we have a choice. Think of it as a little bit of a fork in the road. Do we commit to that person through the marathon of life? Do we grow together in friendship or in marriage or in community? Or do we just learn nothing? Do we be the king? Do we assume that it's everyone else who needs to change and wait stubbornly until they see our point of view? Like Mandela said, do we drink this poison of envy and resentment and hope it affects everyone else? Do we act like the king who wants new wisdom but forgot how to be teachable? We need to be the poor but wise youth from verse 13. We need to be humble and servant-hearted, focus on improving ourselves and learning. We need to be open to being lovingly challenged by those we love and by ourselves, and also to give challenge in a way that is productive and helpful. Because we don't want to end up back at envy. We don't want to sit. We want to sit in that sweet spot that giving and receiving the fullness of friendship. Good friendship highlights the victory we've been given by Jesus. 
He chose to die for us on the cross because he loved us as his sons and as his daughters and as his friends. I think that I really felt God say this week that friendship and community is something we should be striving for. We should be striving for good, healthy friendship, good, healthy community. And praying about that together is a real good way to prioritize that. Yeah, so I'd love us to pray that we would have a fresh understanding of the love Jesus has for us and the worth that he has for us. That way then our friendships can grow healthily. I want us to pray for humbleness, to always be teachable, to be comfortable with challenge. And finally also, pray for each other. If there's something that you felt challenged by, maybe it is envy, maybe it is being stubborn, being teachable, or maybe it's about how you approach, how you approach friendship or your worth in Jesus. Whatever it might be, please do so.